Hi there, and welcome to the She Leads Her Life podcast. I'm Jenna Schneider, your host, and we have one of our favorite guests back on the show today, Dr. Keely Reese. Um, she has been a mentor of mine for years, and I'm so excited to have her brilliance on to share with all of you. And so, Keely, kicking it back to you, I would love if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners today. Absolutely. So happy to be here, Jenna, as always. And I am, yeah, I'm a mom, first and foremost, uh, a partner. I have a spouse. I am a full-time, full professor at the University of Wisconsin in La Crosse in health education, health promotion, and oversee our undergraduate public health, um, bachelor's of science in public health and community health education. And I am the director of our healthcare administration master's program. Um, I have my own um, side gig, side work. I do a lot with mentoring and coaching health professionals into their next um, layer of either health education, public health, wherever they're sort of going and how do they get there and map and sort of career mapping, if you will. Um, but I do a whole host of other fun things like that. And beside, um, mm -hmm. I have two teens, um, just a reminder, uh, yep. And they just keep growing as we keep talking, mm -hmm. Jenna, one's a sophomore <laughs> in college and he transferred in the middle of the pandemic to a different university, um, very far away. And then my other kiddo is a sophomore, um, uh, in high school and mm -hmm. so navigating, two kids that crossed over very important bridges during the pandemic um, from middle school to high school and then from high school to college and navigating all those really hard spaces. Um, there is no playbook. Um, there is no playbook for parents, for educators, for anyone on how to help, you know, and so we're really having to lean heavily on um, anecdotal qualitative data. And now after two years plus, we have some really solid data coming out of different places across the globe, looking at what's happening to these youth and what's happening to them developmentally and sort of where our gaps are going to be in their development, mm -hmm. whether mm -hmm. that is academically or socially. And mm -hmm. so it's been a really fun thing to navigate. Um, and then of course, at the university level, working with hundreds of university students who are also navigating this uh, world mm -hmm. as well. So we are back mm -hmm. in person um, and, you know, navigating the, the rules of a, of a system, a UW system, as well as your own community and around mandates and around policy changes, and then just trying to keep people really safe and healthy and their immune systems and most importantly, their mental health. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a little intro. Yeah, no, if many of our listeners have listened to the episodes that I've had you on before and looking back at our episodes that we've done together, it's just incredible the process and the different changes that have happened throughout these last two years as the evolution of this pandemic have taken place. Today, we're going to have what I like to call a mixed bag. You know, 
for our listeners, I love sharing information and bringing on guests that provide incredible knowledge. And you just have so many different areas. I could sit here for two hours today, at least talking about all these different areas. But we're going to cover different areas from how do we talk to our kids about tough things, um, such as sexual health. And we are going to go there today. We are going to talk about transitioning kids um, out of the household and kind of what your journey has looked like as you've had a teenager now launch and you went from two birds in the nest to one and kind of what that looked like looks like now. And then also, how do we teach our kids to have self-autonomy? especially in this day of age. Um, I know I'm struggling with that as a parent of two daughters who are 11 and eight. And I am a very type A person. I would even call myself sometimes a helicopter parent that is (laughs) self-aware. And so constantly checking myself in realizing they have to develop their own self-autonomy and What does that look like for me as a parent, as I'm helping them launch? Now, you are steps ahead of me, and I've always looked to you and looked up to you as a parent, but I would love to hear kind of what your journey has been, um, your oldest son, um, through the process of being a teenager and launching him to college And then also the transition during the pandemic and advice that you would give to parents as they are launching their first child out, I like to say, out into the wilderness. (laughs) Yep. Yep. It does sort of feel like that some days. Um, Well, so first I should promise this whole conversation with, I'm definitely, um, of a generation raised in the 80s, um, Mm -hmm. born in the 70s, raised in the 80s. So I am definitely Gen Z, um, Mm -hmm. or excuse me, Gen X. Gosh, I forgot Mm -hmm. my Gen. Um, (laughs) And so we have a different experience ourselves as parents. Mm -hmm. And I think think every generation has to kind of look at, and as parents and self-reflect Mm-hmm. their own upbringing and their relationship with their parents, right? And so mm-hmm. our guardians and really reflect on like what worked and what didn't work. And so I'm definitely um, a, a Gen Xer where we were very much on our own. Our, our parents were working full time. Our mothers did have full-time careers um, because they could. So we're of, so my parents are in that boomer generation. Um, and if you're an '80s kid, you were not helicoptered. You were a kid, and especially in the '70s and '80s, you were. Um, we came home to empty houses. We cooked the casseroles. We did the chores after school. Um, we came home and had very big responsibilities because either we had one parent or two parents that were working full time. And so we were really self-sufficient in different ways that I think later generations have been and or what the pendulum swings, right? And so depending if you're coming out as a 50s and 60s parent, you know, if you grew up in the 60s, it looked really different as well as if you're coming out in the 90s and 2000s. 
And so I'm of a parent generation too, where I'm also not, I don't uh, and haven't always fit in with the rest of the parents, um, you know, and I'm, I'm surrounded by really strong helicopter parents and really strong, even ex more extreme would be the snowplow parents. And they are just paving the path and the, the child is following behind. Um, and not to say that my partner and I definitely don't have helicopter moments. Um, it's just the society and the, mm -hmm. you know, we live in the 2000s where in, in the 80s, we were not, our parents didn't have to send us to school concerned about shootings. I didn't grow up in an era where I had drills um, every day about that. And so you have to always take into consideration along the way what's what's happened, what has shifted. Really, it's not that parenting is harder or less hard. It's just that our we have just a, a completely different landscape in which to navigate. And so no judgment passed on any parent and how they're doing it. Um, I think when parents step back and they're questioning, am I doing too much or too little? Um, that's the awareness is first, right? Jenna, you know this, um, aware, we can't have parents change their behavior until they're even aware, have some knowledge, have some cognitive, and then are there things that aren't working? So when you launch a kiddo into the wilderness, I think the, um, the biggest thing is, and whether they go to college or they don't, because I have equal amount of parents around me and colleagues and friends that have launched kids during this pandemic into the working world. Some kiddos took a gap year and some kids tried college. Sometimes they tried college and now they're back into the working world. I mean, this last two years don't look terribly normal either for parents. Um, so not only are you launching them into the wilderness, where things have been scary for kids in high schools and you have had to worry about threats and but at the same time um you now have ha you have this covid threat which adds this element of like disease but also more importantly the parents that are navigating that we're we're much more attuned to their mental health than probably three years ago parents sending their kids off to college mm. or 10 years ago and so we have really important things to have on our mind and to be concerned about. Um, and it's not that the parents raising us in the eighties didn't, we had our own array of fears and, and worries and concerns. Um, I, I, and so there's really good research out there and really good articles and op-ed pieces that talk about this and from different spaces, from different, um, expertise spaces. When I stay in my lane in health education and public health, I really look at this from a very holistic perspective of I'm looking at my child from a very whole perspective. So whole child, right? Um, um, what we would consider in the old days, coordinated school health, which was this very look at the child from a whole mental, social, emotional, um, spiritual, you know, their, their skills, all those things. I would look at it as like this wheel, if you will, wellness wheel, whatever you want to call it. There's lots of different ones at work, but I, I look at that as a parent and I think, where is my kid deficient or where have I not, where have I done too much for my child? Where have I been a slow plow and paved away or where have I helicoptered? Um, 
and then I step back and go, okay, what is this kid? This kid's going to have to figure this out in their, in their future. And so we've done a very, um, concerted from, and this starts when they're little, like we just, we're not the, also the parents. So if you have littles and you're listening, it's important that they, they do have autonomy and they, they are able to dress themselves. Um, we were the parents that laid out two outfits and said, pick between these two or, you know, from the time they were walking, they had chores in the house that looked like clearing the dishes, putting the dishes away, walking the dog, um, all age appropriate chores, all the way to, you know, their, and again, it started when they were little so that by the time we launched a kid, he knew definitely how to do his own laundry, knew how to do the family's laundry, knew how to cook complete meals, how to shop for meals, how to, um, you know, deal with things around a car and change oil or get the, you know, how do you, I mean, the kid was nine years old and he was calling his own dentist asking, <laughs> you know, I remember I the one that the nanny comes out, she's like, who are you on the phone with? And he's like, oh, she's, I was calling, I was calling the dentist. And she's like, why are you calling the dentist? And he's like, well, I want to know if I can pull this tooth out or if this is one of my baby teeth that it can't be pulled. And I remember thinking, yep, this is our nine-year-old that's calling the dentist yeah. to ask if he can pull this tooth out or if it's one that he has to keep and hang on to. And he's been very in charge of his dental. He's missing like, you know, eight adult teeth. So he always yeah. has been in charge of his dental care. And so having them be very self-sufficient and letting them have autonomy is scary for parents because, yep, the job could be done faster, easier, better, cleaner. Mm -hmm. Um However, then they're afraid and they're attentive to try it. And, uh -huh. um, and I think it's also personalities, right? Like, so I, I definitely don't have that personality that um, have ever, I, I've just had to let go of things in my life that don't like the, if, if it, let's just use the example of cooking in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. My kids have been standing on stools, cooking mm -hmm. in the kitchen since they were one and two and three yeah. and all the way up. So I have, I have mm -hmm. kids that cook, they're foodies. Mm -hmm. They, um, but I also, I was the parent and had a co-parent that did not care that the kitchen was kind of a mess and that the meal mm -hmm. took longer and mm -hmm. that there was flour all over or, mm -hmm. you know, like, and early on, that was a process of letting go of that. Cause early on, yeah. I remember feeling like, oh my gosh, this is such a disaster. What a mess. I've created three more hours for myself. Yeah. But yeah. in the end, they had to be a part of that cleaning up too. Yeah. So we learned very quickly that if, yep, if you're going to be in the kitchen, it's from start to end. It's you, you, yeah. you get to make this mess, but you also help yeah. clean up the mess from sweeping to, yeah. um, and if my kids ever came around and said they were bored, I usually said, yep, here's a bucket and here's a washcloth and the windows yeah. need to be washed or the floors need to be scrubbed yeah. or so they also grew up having access to people that helped us out with that in the house. But also yeah. it was never above them to get down on the floor and scrub yeah. and clean yeah. out the dog kennel and go in the yard and pick up. I mean, kids can do any chore. There's never yeah. a chore a kid can't do. So autonomy is then giving them options, right? So Jenna, we learn about this so much mm -hmm. in our field, right? Where we're um, in public health and health education, we spend so much time on the theory of free will that at the end of the day, 
when we even look at parenting, we cannot force a kid to do a lot. I mean, there's coercion and then there's like abuse. And when you step back and realize that at the end of the day, the child really should have some autonomy. Um, And again, it's a parenting philosophy that not all parents agree with. um, But the more autonomous the child feels in that decision, the less tantrums you're gonna have. And even if you're reducing the choices down to two things. Um, And again, your job as a parent is to guide them, obviously out of danger and, you know, Mm -hmm. situations. But I think when we launched our kid in that respect, there was never a moment of thinking. And I also remember making a list about the time he was a freshman. And I made this little to-do list on my phone that just said all the things I need to teach Gavin before he graduates and um, things that I freaked out about that I hadn't taught him or that he hadn't done. And like, they're, they're kind of random and ridiculous and they're not all related. Like one was like, I'm not sure he knows how to boil an egg to make it a, like, he knows how to make eggs, but does he know how to boil? He eats a lot of hard boiled eggs. And yeah. There was this moment and he's like, oh my gosh, mom, I know how to boil an egg. And I know how to, I know how to Google it, you know? And so but just that even Keely, that intent that is so beautiful because there's such an intentionality behind that. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. What it often parenting, I feel like, is a dance with your child, right? You're constantly in this dance with the child of when do you need to tell them what to do? When do you give them choices? What do you teach them? Right. And yeah. you doing that with Gavin was partnering with him of, what can you pass on to him, but like teach him so that he has the capabilities to even do those things. Yep. I mean, it was all the way down to like how to book an airline ticket by himself. Um, this, he was a freshman, so yeah. driving, you know, driving was on the checklist bank, um, yeah. run his own, you know, the bank account. He had just gotten a bank account. He was like a freshman. Um, how to ask someone out. Like not through oh. a text. <laughs> um, uh, let's I see. feel like boil, this needs to be a book. <laughs> no, right. Yes. Does he know how, whipping cream. He, does he know how to yeah. whip cream? <laughs> yeah. I think I just um, learned that last year. So he is yeah. way ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, how, how to talk to an advisor about hard stuff in college, right? How to email and yeah. talk to an advisor appropriately. How to ask for help. How to find directions. Mm-hmm. Um, renter's mm-hmm. insurance. Um grammarly for his papers, you know, all these funny things that I just, I remember I would lay at night and as a parent think every year, I'd be like, it'd get closer and closer to senior year. And you'd think I haven't done these things. And then you realize when you, and I'd say them out loud or Kurt would, we would say, he'd be like, well, I watched you guys do this. I know how to do this. You know, Uh, realize uh, that if the kiddo uh is capable they can observe those things and if Mm -hmm. not you kind of create a list in your family Uh and um but i also think that part of that then making that list is also recognizing the most beautiful thing that happens is you can't we can't teach them everything and most importantly as health educators right we teach them how to do it so yeah. in health education, we can't have our our health educators be experts in every specific content area all yeah. the time. And it's a constant growing content field area that grows, yeah. but we give them the skills on how to research mm-hmm. and how to val- and make sure it's valid and reliable. And mm-hmm. so I think I've spent a lot of time 
making sure, do you know how to find good, valid resources on this, uh-huh. <laughs> on yeah. cooking, on sex, on yeah. managing yeah. money? On, yeah. um, and then the cool thing is when you have those conversations from the time they're little to now, and they've been, they've been given autonomy mm-hmm. and they've been given the opportunity to fail, they mm-hmm. seek you out for help then. Then they call mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. college and say, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do um, because they trust you and they trust that you'll be there to do trust. that. And mm-hmm. That's the autonomy that I had growing up um, for sure. Like, you know, we were given options and course correction mm-hmm. and opportunities to fail mm-hmm. and opportunities to um, ask for help and not mm-hmm. be made fun of when you ask for help and, you know, just really be honored them. We were honored as, humans and i think as children it's the best thing we can do to give them that autonomy Mm -hmm. is to give them choice Mm. and so it might be yep we are not going to listen or watch these rated r movies however Mm -hmm. here's these pg ones Mm -hmm. you are now having the capability of of watching and listening 100 percent, or music right so it might be um, we get taught, we talk about this a lot in our sexuality courses and working with parents about, um, how do I protect my kid from all the stuff that's out there on their phones and iPads and, and we can use these devices and these apps and these things that help kind of mm-hmm. clamp down on them. I'm also mm-hmm. a big advocate of instead of clamping down first and then making it seem like this really super secretive space, like what's behind the mm-hmm. um, curtain. Um, Mm -hmm. let's just talk about it. And then as a parent share with the child, here's my fear. Mm -hmm. Here's, here's my fear. Here's what I want you to know. That's so good. And let's just process this together Mm -hmm. versus we kind of create a wall. Mm -hmm. Don't do it. Don't have sex. Don't drink. Don't do these things. Mm -hmm. Don't do these things. But we don't say what the, Mm -hmm. we don't explain the reasons and help the kiddo, um, navigate those things. Yeah. So we make them big and scary. And then yes. we, then the kid says, Hey, I don't trust parents to go to if I'm stuck in this. So now I'm going to rely on my peers. Mm-hmm. Now I got to rely on the internet. Now I got to rely on, again, my friends who probably know less about it than I do. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, That's and- so good, Keely. I love what you're saying. It, it's this, what I'm hearing is this constant flow of communication and trust between child and parent. And what I have seen, and even I catch myself with doing, sometimes it's easier to avoid the tough conversations. Or I shouldn't even say tough, but the conversations that make us feel a little uncomfortable, right? And so, or we second guess how we're going to say it and when the appropriate time to say it is. So then we don't end up having the conversation at all. Right. And so how can we as parents be intentional about having and creating space for those conversations? So there is this open line of communication and trust. And so I feel like this is a perfect segue into those tough conversations how do we, um, before we even started recording this podcast, we were talking a little bit about how do we have the conversations with our kids about sex? And you and I were saying that we feel like there are different stages and layers to yeah. those conversations and that it's not just 
one and done conversation. Oh, we've had the sex talk and now we can move on. There's, it's an evolutionary process with the child, but I would love for you to share with our listeners. Let's say they are just at the beginning stages of, okay, I need to have the sex talk where with my child, where do I start? Yep. And so, and it doesn't matter if the kid is three or 13. And if you've not started, you just have to recognize not beating yourself up as a parent, first of all, um, and self, you know, come back, sort of zoom back out and say, you're probably, you know, we bring and we project our own past, either negative, positive or neutral experiences with sex and sex education and sexuality. And so if I'm a parent and I've not started the conversation and I now have a teen, it's probably because your teen experience either with a parent talking to you or not talking to you and or your own experiences as a teen, either positive or negative or neutral around sexuality, we bring that with us. We bring all this baggage. And as a parent, one of the things that I always say to parents that are just going to start this conversation, and again, no matter what the age, 3, 13, 16, 21, I mean, hopefully by the time they're 21, they're out the door and they're figuring it out on their own, but um, not to skirt the issue. And so starting off by saying, you know, the intention behind it is before you have the conversation with a child, come back and just sit with self for five minutes, you know, 10 minutes, and just reflect on where's my fear? Where's my, what is my past experience? So you kind of have to get in the space of what's my intention? What, what is it that I want my kid to know? And what am I fearful about talking about? So sometimes parents are just really embarrassed because talking about um, body parts are, and then, the second layer to that, besides just the fear of being embarrassed of, you know, getting read or saying something wrong. The second part is they're just fearful that if I talk to my kid about this, this means they will be more likely to engage in um, sexual behaviors. And so we just have decades of data, (laughs) strong data, correlational data that has led us to cause and effect data that there is the rationale is out the door. The myth is out the door that if we teach kids about anything, put in X, sex, drugs, alcohol, whatever, they are, it, does, it makes them less likely to have riskier behaviors with that. So we know that we have decades of data that have proven the opposite. Um, so when we can help parents just recognize that by talking about it does not indicate that their kid will then engage in it. In fact, the reverse is true. The more you talk about it, the less likely they are to engage in riskier behaviors. So because they have decision-making skills, they have, they're armed with information, they understand their bodies, they understand other people, they understand relationships. And so when we think about the sexuality circles and we think about 
all of the elements of sexuality, a lot of all things that parents also bring to that first conversation is all of the really sex negative things. So the sex negative things are the scary things. It's the big things in the night that scare all of us as parents. It's the assault, it's incest, it's rape, it's um, harassment, it's all of the things that either we've seen, watched, witnessed, experienced in our lifetime and or the media has ex extraordinarily um, heightened for our, you know, and all the way to coercion to mm -hmm. uh, porn is a, is a mm -hmm. big one that parents are very scared about as well. And so they, that is one circle of sexuality. The rest of the circles of sexuality are very sex positive and they are around bodies, body image, um, how our bodies work, anatomy, physiology, reproduction, protection, he sexual health, like understanding their reproductive organs are no different than the heart or the arm or the bicep or the brain. They're just an organ that resides in a reproductive area of the body or, <laughs> or genitalia. And so we've, we, um, we've set parents up to fail already because we live in a very um dichotomous world where sex is everywhere and it sells and it's in our faces and yet at the same time it's taboo and people don't talk about it and it's scary and it seems like all the sex negative things so i usually really help parents step back get into a space of um neutrality and kind of understanding the circles of sexuality that there's one circle that is sex negative and the rest have these very neutral or just very positive aspects of it and helping them recognize that when I talk to my kid about this, um, you don't need to start with the sex scary stuff, start with their mm. bodies. Mm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. So good. So good. Yeah. Keep going. Yes. Yep. And just start with um, where the kid is at. So if they're yeah. three, it's about learning about their body parts. It's learning about the names of their body parts. It's learning about the basics of how babies are made because little, little three and four year olds, we sexualize how babies are made, but reproduction itself is a scientific process, a physiological, yeah. cool, beautiful process that if we step back and explain it to kids that way, um, it's not scary and it, we don't need to sexualize it for that three-year-old. As adults, mm -hmm. we sexualize everything. When they're touching their penis, when the diaper comes off, we sexualize <laughs> that as like, don't touch your penis and don't touch uh, your vulva versus yeah. why wouldn't they? They just have their diaper on for 24 hours and it feels good right. to have it off during bath time. And so it's right. just like an elbow, an arm. It's like, oh, hey. Yeah. Um, so we have to kind of remember that as adults, we have knowledge that this three-year-old or this 10-year-old or this 11-year-old, these tweens, mm -hmm. they're not thinking in the adult brain yet because they don't have the experiences we do with movies, music, personal experiences, history, news. The kid has what's in front of them. And a lot of times the conversations get started because a kid does ask something and then the parent kind of freezes and says, we'll talk about that later. Or again, their natural mm. reaction is, this is not the appropriate place to talk about that. And then mm. it kind of scares the kid. And then mm -hmm. the kid never asks again. Mm -hmm. And so the readiness and the intent is helping parents get in the space, get into a sex neutral mm -hmm. space, and then mm -hmm. remember what's the intent and then where's their kid at. Mm -hmm. And then we help, yeah, my whole job is to help help parents Mm -hmm. recognize the stage and age their kid is at mm -hmm. and then 
like you're not going to address with a three-year-old what you would with an 11 year old and an 11 year old doesn't need to know what i'm talking about with like high school kids that are mm-hmm. watching and experiencing their um in relationships and they're exploring mm-hmm. relationships and they're figuring out their sexual mm-hmm. i you know um, orientation and their mm-hmm. you know attraction situations um but an 11 year old needs to know and understand physiologically what could be happening to their body, pubic mm. hair, armpit hair, mm-hmm. um, secretions, um, the start of menarche, the start of like erections and um, you know, what that looks like and, and how to help them navigate that. Mm-hmm. Or a three-year-old doesn't need to know any of that yet and just needs mm-hmm. to know where their vulva is, how, mm-hmm. y- you know, where they urinate from, where they, um, have bowel movements from where mm-hmm. they have how breasts, you know, function and, and just non-sexualizing, mm. rape, you know, sort of anatomy and physiology and how things, um, and again, sometimes three, four five, they're very curious and like, you know, how, where do babies come from? How are mm-hmm. babies made? And, mm-hmm. um, but again, the sexual act doesn't need to be described to a three and four year old. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, correct. it can just be yeah. very scientific and, yeah. And then as the kid gets older and they've had books and they've had materials yeah. to look at that are age appropriate. Um, and I'm a big believer yeah. in having books available to kids um, yeah. and not in a shelf that is, I, I think it's important that books about their bodies are in their rooms that they can explore at their own, um, you know, so there's yep. age appropriate books for mm-hmm. three, five, six, and then preteens and then teenagers. And yep. Um, so that they don't have to, by the time they're teenagers, they're not relying on Google, which might bring up good stuff, but is also an entry to the deep dark web of like, huh, is that accurate or is that not accurate information? And And images that might not be appropriate for them and correct. Yeah. And I think each family has to figure out like what books there, there's levels of readiness Mm -hmm. of books that go into these things. And that incorporate mm-hmm. faith and that incorporate um, mm-hmm. spirituality into it and how they mm-hmm. want to talk about it around relationships. And, mm-hmm. and, and again, there, I even go back to every family has the free will on how they're mm-hmm. going to adjust these things. Um, mm-hmm. And it really ties into our earlier conversation of our, our ability as parents to launch these kiddos out into the world is that we're launching them out to have relationships with other humans once they leave our house. And if they're not armed with decision-making skills and watching for telltale signs and relationships mm-hmm. and what does relationship abuse look like and what mm-hmm. is coercion and um, how do people, you know, and, and navigating the really hard things in relationships, mm-hmm. um, and trusting their own bodies and learning about how mm-hmm. their bodies work, what they like before they mm-hmm. get into a relationship. Because um, mm-hmm. I think then we just have adults that just don't know how to interact with each other mm-hmm. as humans. And we wonder why relationships don't work mm-hmm. out or fail or on the on the sexual end of things, because mm-hmm. people aren't taught how to communicate about their needs, about what does or does not feel good, about consent. Yeah. I'm a huge believer about consent should mm-hmm. be taught from the time they're out of utero <laughs> to um, mm-hmm. all the way till they're leaving for college. And the conversation around consent will morph and change because um, yep. what you're going to talk about about a young child is about who and who cannot touch their bodies, who cannot yeah. 
you know, and so when kids are taught about that, they have decision making skills and they have the empowerment. Um, and we can help prevent a lot of such sometimes we can prevent a lot of situations where they feel like they can trust you if something is happening or they are being groomed or there is something happening to them as they're getting into their teens or tweens or high school, um, when there's power differentials and, and what this all boils down to is what I'm hearing you say throughout all of this is that there is communication, but we're also giving our children a voice in this and letting them know that there is no shame in talking about this and that this needs to be an open communication so that they feel that they have a voice in this very important part of their life, right? I want to go back also Um, as I was thinking, we have two daughters, 11 and eight. Um, and my husband and I, I, God bless my parents. I have one of the best dads in the entire world. Right. But in that generation, it wasn't really taught that the dad talks to the daughter about sex or menstruation or changes in their body. And so, In our household, we've made it really important that when we had the first sex talk that we did it as a family and my husband, Nate, was present and that they get comfortable talking about their bodies and the changes that will be happening with their bodies and talking with our girls once they do start menstruating, what that's going to look like. But Nate being present for those conversations, even to the point of, um, if Nate needs to go buy tampons or at some point, or if he needs to help them order a bra, right? That it's not this uncomfortable communication pathway between dad and daughter. Um, I would love to hear kind of what your stance is. I know Kurt is a very involved dad, but like what that kind of looked like in your household as well. Yep, absolutely. And also came from a family that did not probably sit. I mean, they had lots of books around and lots of like, and there wasn't ever a conversation that they couldn't have with their parents. Um, yeah. Yeah. But also a different generation. And so Same. I would yeah. say, and we very intentionally did that from the get go too, and very much, um, crossover gender, um, both mm-hmm. ways with, all right, so I'm going to have com- lots of conversations about I mean, by default, I am the health educator in the family, but he is a, a, an educator by training and trade and has done many of the discussions in elementary schools, um, Mm -hmm. because I didn't have a health teacher. So he'd be asked to come in and do the lifespan development, um, day or, um, help the one teacher out or be that male to the female nurse that was doing it or whatever in the classrooms. Um, so we were very intentional, um, that both kids could come to either parent. Um, that both kids, whether that was, yep, talking about um, <laughs> jock straps to tampons yeah. to um, making sure that you know they. I, and I guess from early on, those conversations always happened around the dinner table. They always happened. And I want to say too, kind of to harken back to how do you even start this? One of the things mm-hmm. when you're new at this and don't have that background and that comfort level, 
my my best advice is do it in a side by side like instead of having this family meeting and everyone mm -hmm. looks super nervous and anxious sometimes mm -hmm. it can it can the parent can bring it up more in a side we call them side by side or coming alongside conversations and mm. so you might be cooking something you might be grilling on the back patio you uh, might that's be fishing so good. Um, you might mm -hmm. be in the car is a beautiful place because kid is mm -hmm. either in the car seat in the back or they're sitting mm -hmm. next to you in the front seat. And again, you're looking forward driving, but you're having this conversation that you don't mm -hmm. have to make eye contact with. And not only does that put the kid at ease, but it for the yeah. parent who's really anxious about it, yeah. it helps put them at ease too. So we, we call it coming alongside or mm, if we were beautiful. in a therapeutic setting it would be like mm -hmm. um the diff it would be similar when therapists use like a art therapy or mm -hmm. they use some sort of play therapy and then they're having mm -hmm. conversations while the child is playing something mm -hmm. um so the kid could be playing legos and that's how the conversations would start mm -hmm. um our kids played um you know house and dolls and both kids had dolls both kids mm -hmm. had i mean there was just no genderizing of the toys in our house and mm -hmm. so that also just brought up natural conversations around caregiving and mm -hmm. um and so they saw a lot of opportunity for us to just have those natural conversations around bath time or around um, just mm -hmm. normal hygiene practices. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've, each of us kind of handled those in different situations. Mine might've looked more intentional and I, you know, family, we'd be having dinner and we would just start discussing something that was in the news or in the mm -hmm. media, or someone would come home and talk mm -hmm. about something at school or, um, but it might have been more like for my, you know, for Kurt to be able to be cooking with a kid and doing it, or again on a fishing mm -hmm. boat, or mm -hmm. you're kind of doing something side by side and just saying, hey, mm -hmm. you know, you want to talk about this? Or, and sometimes it was just opening a door, right? So it's just sometimes yeah. saying, hey, I know this is a thing going on right now in your school, and I know that you might have seen this, or mm -hmm. so again, if they're on TikTok or if they're on, Mm -hmm. social media if they're older teens if they're younger teens it might be more hey i know you're going to probably have a lot of questions about your body in the next year mm -hmm. and it can just be as easy as dad saying you know i'm here if you ever want to talk about that um yeah and the other thing that can be really helpful is storytelling so mm -hmm. again as parents we don't want to always tell them every you know, there's this fine line of like, what do you tell from your childhood story? But it can also right. be a way to bring in humor or yeah. I'll, let me tell you how my, you know, and it can be a funny story yeah. that, well, let me tell you how my dad tried to tell me about this. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. kind of um, allude to like embarrassing moments and then just let it lets the child know that you're human and that it was embarrassing to be that kid too. And yeah. then how you kind of got through it and um so what what we call that is being an askable parent right so mm -hmm. it it doesn't really have to even start with sex um so the parents out there that are listening that have not had that conversation yet back it up start with a less like intense topic but maybe there's a world topic maybe it's around you know the health maybe it's around mental health maybe it's around stress maybe it's around um something in the media um something around a family dynamic or you know grandma's not you know maybe it's around grandma's health right in the family or mm -hmm. grandpa or someone's gone through a loss so it can start with other things like right or even the family pet that's 
um, you know, just gave birth to the cat. <laughs> I don't know. There's a, especially kids that grow up on farms or with animals, there's this cycle of life and how they mm -hmm. reproduce and babies. And mm -hmm. so sometimes a parent can just start out by being an askable parent about other things, about friendship, start off easy, ease into it with, tell me about, and a lot of times those conversations can just be openers of tell me about how your friendships um, are going at school. Tell me about um, things you've heard at school that you're worried about. Um, so they can just be open stem sentences that just mm -hmm. kind of ease into being an askable mm -hmm. parent. Because if you've not started that and then it's like abrupt, the kid will be like, where is this coming from? And, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you can, there's ways you can ease into it too, even with sexuality. So start off with talking about, um, you know, bodies, hearts, um, anatomy, questions mm -hmm. they have about physiology. There's so mm -hmm. many cool anatomy and physiology um, books and workbooks and mm -hmm. coloring books even. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, th and then you can ease into it and it doesn't all have to be at one yeah. time. Because um, I think- so, so good. Yeah. So good. Well, Keely, I could talk to you all day long. I really could. And I think our listeners could too, but we are coming up yep. on our time. I always learn so much from you and listening from you. And I just adore you and the work that you do. And thank you so much for being on today. Um, where can our listeners find you at? Yep, absolutely. Um, Keely S. Reese at gmail.com. So if you have specific questions, just send me an email. If you want more information about any of this, or you want tools, mm -hmm. you want books, resources. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, just go to my website, keelyreese.com. Um, and you can get to my email that way. There's a contact me page. And it will send, it goes directly to me, no one else sees it. So if you're like, Oh, my gosh, I want to ask this question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I just want to say too that when we don't provide this information to our teens and our young people, and then when we launch them, right? So just to circle back mm. and make this full yeah. circle. Yeah. I have 38 students in my human sexuality class this semester. Mm -hmm. And every week they have the opportunity to leave me Q and A anonymously. Uh -huh. And I also have a student in a policy class right now that's developing, like, how do we have better comprehensive sex ed in schools, but also when they get to college? And then I'm thinking, what about the yeah. kids that don't go to college? How are they, you right. know? And so when I look at these 20 year olds and 21 year olds and 19 year olds that are still really unsure about their bodies and how they work and they're terrified and they're navigating relationships and breakups mm -hmm. and um, they're, they're navigating the scarier parts of sex, sexuality, like STDs and, um, yeah. and sexual assault and those things. Yeah. Um, it makes me just really want to help parents help their teens and help their teens mm. launch into mm -hmm. adulthood. Um, and for every parent out there, um, it, like, it's one of those things that, we want to sometimes rely on the schools to do it, but the schools are not all armed with comprehensive sex ed or any sexuality education, let alone something that would be comprehensive. And so if they're not getting it at school and you're not getting it in a faith-based setting, it really has to come from home. And the, we know that teens launch the best 
when there's an adult, one adult, doesn't even have to be two, doesn't have to be nuclear, it can be one adult that has helped that kiddo ask really hard questions. And so I just leave you with, are you an askable guardian or parent? And if not, how can you, you know, work on becoming an askable parent or guardian? Um, because it'll prevent a lot of like what I see in the college level too with teens, just, mm -hmm. you know, they're an extension of young adults trying mm -hmm. to navigate really hard things. And so, yeah, absolutely. Just reach out to me, um, com, and i um, happy to help anyone out there with that. Um, it's trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much today, Dr. Reese. And thank you listeners for tuning in to She Leads Her Life. I already have many ideas pawning off of this for future endeavors that Dr. Reese and I may go into. So we will keep you posted on that. And we all hope that you stay healthy and safe and have a great week.